we'd probably come to this conclusion from about as many different routes as there are people in this room. Everybody would have a slightly different reason perhaps for thinking this, but I think if we're just doing kind of man on the street interviews, we would probably notice that most people feel like dark moments are upon us and that human problems seem intractable and that anxiety and despair grip many of us. You know, it's kind of like being on the edge of your seat during one of those Indiana Jones movies, you know, where it's just one thread after another, you know, and it just feels like it's never going to end. And I always thought those moments were sort of funny when, when uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the actor, uh, when Harrison Ford would just kind of go, oh, God, not again, you know, here comes, a, here comes another challenge. But unlike uh, a movie, our news feeds have no guarantee of a happy resolution, and we can be easily forgiven for wondering where is there hope for a good future. So I know I date myself with this. I tried to find some more modern songs, but I just couldn't find any. So I, I date myself with this. And it's not just because Simon and Garfunkel were incredibly talented. Um, there, there is a reason that songs like this live on in people's hearts and minds. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side when times get tough and friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. I mean, there is a reason that songs like that just live forever. And they will live for generations more as long as there's human people around. Or the Beatles. Remember, here comes the sun. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. But here comes the sun. And I say, it's all right. Actually, if you, know, you were to just stop and try to intentionally look at a different angle, there's actually reasons for hope all around us. In a, a one of the fall editions of Relevant Magazine, they listed some of these, and I've been aware of them from other sources as well, that, again, you'd never know it from looking at our news feeds, but actually, in terms of world peace, violence is at its lowest level in modern history. Maybe the potter really does have the world in his hands. Or when you think of disease, the eradication of infectious disease could become a reality in our lifetime. Lots of reasons for that. But maybe the Lord really does act on behalf of those who hope in him. Or in terms of justice reform, the amount of people incarcerated in the U.S. has fallen dramatically over the last decade or so. As Isaiah said, oh, look on us, we pray, for we are your people. What about clean water? Today, more than 90% of the global population has access to clean water. Maybe the Lord really does come to help those who gladly do what's right. Or infant mortality. In the last two decades, infant mortality has fallen by 49%. Maybe there really is a divine potter crafting something beautiful out of our wiggling clay lives. And this, of course, is our hope. But those signs of hopefulness aren't meant to say there aren't difficult things. I think just like for us, as it was for God's people in Isaiah 64, like ancient Israel, we understand life and experience life to be this big mix of both good stuff and bad stuff. I think I first heard this from Rick Warren, that life isn't actually a, a series of ups and downs, that life is actually like two railroad tracks, and that there is always simultaneously good stuff going on and hard, bad stuff going on. And that's just real human life. And Israel experienced it, as we read in our text this morning, of being aware, particularly in this moment, of their sin, that all of us 
have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And what's going on under that really powerful rhetoric is that Israel has this personal sense of knowing that they'd sinned greatly, so much so that their existence seemed in doubt, perhaps another exile or worse. And so this section of Isaiah is full of lament. And it's been said that lament is pain, seeking understanding and hope. And so Isaiah the prophet here writes simultaneously to call on Israel to repent, but also to remind God not to abandon his people, to not be hidden, and to act in accordance with divine purpose. And the psychology here is, God, Yahweh, you acted powerfully when we were in exile. Why not now? Right, like, Lord, when our, we were having a difficult pregnancy when we were young, you acted and we had a healthy daughter. But now so-and-so in our family has gotten hit by a car and why aren't you acting powerfully now? And this is, this is real life, human life, whether it's ancient Israel or modern Americans, this is real life, human life, why? Dietrich Bonhoeffer commenting on the hiddenness of God says that God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross, that he's weak and powerless in the world and that is the way in which he is actually with us and helps us. And for Bonhoeffer, as you know, living in the ravages of World War II and the ravages of his people, he's not denying or lessening who God is. It was his way of making sense of God, the kind of God whose power is suffering and whose omnipotence is vulnerability. The kind of God who relates to the world with non-coercive love and suffering service versus domination and force. And you should be happy about that. God's hiddenness is both for his purposes and for our good. Were he not hidden, he would just steamroll over all of humanity and all of history. But out of his love and out of his wisdom, he allows himself, because he's non-coercive, to be pushed out of the world, should that be what an era or a human being would prefer. But he's also willing to be present in suffering service and in non-domination, non-force, when those who would like that to be true are so. Now, if you look in your text, in your bulletin, I think it's verse 8. The sentence starts with this little three-letter word, yet. And this is fundamental, even to today, of a Hebrew view of spirituality. And it was certainly true of the people of God in the Old Testament. This little word, yet, or sometimes you'll see in Hebrew, but now. This is always at the heart of Jewish spirituality because this sense of yet or but now, they make hope always possible when both logic and circumstances seem to point out bad outcomes. So this yet but thing that happens all throughout the Old Testament is meant to say that everything of Yahweh is that he's always our father and our potter. And that makes a yet or a but now possible. All throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, there's this verb form, to form. And so whether you think that relationally as a father forming a daughter or a son, or whether you think of it as a potter forming clay in the potter's hands, the idea here is that we are the people of God's hands and that we come from God and are completely dependent on God. And so you can see that both father and potter, 
These are both meant to convey to us very close personal connections, like God's hands actually on your squishy little, my squishy little misshapen life, or God as Father who's shaping us relationally. So then our role is to remain malleable in God's hands, and in a sense to work on that relationship if you think of it in more fatherly terms, opening our lives, our hearts, and our souls. And this is what's key in Advent, with active anticipation and hope. There's a reason we tell ourselves this story every year, and it's because there are always good reasons to not have active anticipation of a yet, or a but now, or of hope. And so in our gospel reading, what we see in this story is this encouragement to remain ready to see, to always have an active anticipation for hope. Because as I said, the Jewish view of history was that God is in control and that he determines the right time for major turning points in history. In the same way that Israel found itself in exile more than once and surprisingly and graciously and powerfully delivered more than once, they came to see that it's God who's in charge of these big things that happen in history. And so what we see in Mark 13 is not a prediction of the end of the world, but a prediction of the end of their world precisely an end of the way of their life that was centered on a misuse of the temple. And the temple being torn down is a prophetic symbol of the way that Israel was living with injustice to each other, the way that they were living with hostility towards outsiders, the way that these kind of things were marking their way, the way that their interaction with religion was making them worse kinds of human beings. So that their religion positively taught them, if you're a Samaritan, sorry, if you're a Jew, you hate the Samaritans. When I was a young Christian, 19 years old, I was taught to hate Robert Schuller. seriously. And I was positively taught to hate Roman Catholics. And so religion actually dehumanized me. And then one day in the living room of John Wimber, I met Robert Schuller, and Debbie and I became friends with his family and discovered that he was not at all an object for hatred. Just a guy doing his best to think his best thoughts and understand God the best he could, do his best for others based on what he was coming to understand. And we, you know, we can all pick and choose what we thought was right or good, but he was not worthy of my hatred. But the Jews were positively taught, if you're a Herodian, well then you, you hate the Qumran sect, you hate the Essenes, and you hate the Zealots. And if you're a Zealot, you hate those guys. So positive hatred was what was emanating from the temple and the sense that through hatred and violence that they could somehow bring about the will of God, that they could insert themselves into that yet or into that but now was actually dehumanizing them and everybody else around them because you can't hate a Samaritan until you first dehumanize them. They have to become something less than you and your sense of what you hold to be right. And then through that, we can dehumanize the other. And this is what Jesus said is going to be torn down and not one stone will be left upon the other because it is God, not misguided religion that controls the outcomes of the world. That's hope, that's anticipation. This is Advent. We now wait between AD 70 and the destruction of the temple and Jesus is coming again to bring peace, to bring the cessation of violence, to bring the cessation of injustice. We now wait for this to come remaining able, we hope, to see. 
So the judgment that fell on the temple is meant to be for us a foretaste of the judgment that's to come on the whole world. And remember, as I've said before, the judgment here doesn't mean like a dog getting put in its crate or you know, a kid having to go on time out or something. This isn't God coming to in any way be mean. So I always think, ladies, this will be God coming to say, no more abuse, not in my new world. Guys, never again will you be reduced to a function, not in God's new world. Now that's gonna tick some people off. People who are intent on abusing women, well, God's made a space for them somehow in the cosmos. Gehenna, Hades, hell. It's for those who really don't want anything to do with God because they positively want to have a utilitarian relationship with others no matter how that might mean using either gender. But so whatever might malalign them with God, you know, the way Lewis gets us in the great divorce, it's just people getting further and further and further away from God. As you know, Lewis says, there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who say yes to God and to his judgment of what's good, or those who in the end, God just says yes to them. Now, if you don't want anything to do with me, if you want to continue dehumanizing yourself and dehumanizing others, well, I've created a space for you in the cosmos but it's not with me and with the people who love me and love what I'm up to. And so we don't in any way rejoice in the fall of the temple, but we see it as a foretaste of the goodness of God that will come, but that sadly had to begin with the tearing down of religion that was turning people into worse sorts of human beings. Now, I don't say that in any kind of anti-Judaism, not in the slightest. I sat this week thinking about this what in our religious institutions are malaligned with the aims of Jesus? What in Protestantism is malaligned with the aims of Jesus? What in Anglicanism might be malaligned with the aims of Jesus? That's the invitation in seeing how the temple is a foretaste. The invitation is to put it more positively is something like this. What might faithfulness mean in our age? We don't live in AD 70. And we don't meet Samaritans on the street. And you probably have never met a Herodian or somebody who said to you, yes, I'm a part of the Essenes. But you do meet Democrats and Republicans and fundamentalist Catholics and Protestants who hate Catholics. You meet all sorts of other people that live in 2017, 2018. And for us, the formational invitation in that passage in Mark 13 is what might faithfulness mean to us in our age? What might it mean for us to keep awake, to watch with hope, to remain ready to see? So waiting to see, waiting to know, waiting for the pain to subside, those human realities are why words, Advent words of hope and peace and joy and love are necessary for shaping our lives. A young blogger who I read this week, a young minister said, what God does in us as we wait learning hope and remaining able to see is more important than what we're waiting for. But waiting is difficult. It's difficult because in waiting, we can't see what God's up to and we doubt that he's at work in our lives. And this causes anxiety. And anxiety causes us to do irrational things. But putting it positively, thinking of it in its advent hopefulness, Henry Nouwen says, active waiting is waiting that pays attention. It's active waiting that is fully present to what's really going on, even when to all outward appearances, nothing is going on, and you can't see God at work. Or Eugene Peterson has written, waiting in hopeful prayer 
is a disciplined refusal to act before God does. And so hope is what sustains a heart waiting to be healed. And I'm quite sure that around this room, there are hearts waiting to be healed from something. And Advent, as you may know, is a kind of a semi-penitential season. That is to say, it's a season of preparation, of repentance, not with the same accent that Lent has. Uh, So again, it's called sort of semi-penitential. And over these next four weeks, we're going to try to pay attention to that, to the places in our own lives as we talk about hope, that we need hopefulness, or as we come to the other weeks of peace and joy and love, we're going to try to pay attention together about how God might be wanting to meet us there and to have some times of praying for each other just after the message instead of when we've normally had quiet. We're going to have a time to try to pay attention, to remain ready to see where in our own lives we might need some healing for a heart that has been waiting and finds itself in pain.